Repeat this, O magnify the Lord with me, O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together, and let us exalt his name together. Let's do that one more time. O magnify the Lord with me, O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together, and let us exalt his name together. Well, that's our theme this morning. I want to have you turn with me to Job chapter 1. And in Job 1, as you're finding that passage, I want to have you put yourself in the shoes of an unbeliever for a moment. Put yourself in the shoes of a person who's hurting, who's sensing some sort of undefinable inner emptiness. And you're desperately looking for some sort of spiritual help. You, you don't know what you're looking for. You just know you need something. You may not know what it is, but as you do with all people who are looking for spiritual help do and jump on the internet, you do a web search for churches. And you come across a local church that describes what they call a worship experience. The website promises great things with what they call powerful worship spirit-filled worship, victorious worship. And as you read the final advertisement, which says, come experience the power of God with us, you genuinely sense hope. And you say, that might be for me. And so you go to this local church and you're warmly welcomed. You're pleasantly surprised to see everyone dressed like they just got out of bed or are recovering from a hangover kind of like you were when you were searching for spiritual help online. And as you find a seat, out walks the band onto a smoky stage. There are multiple screens in the big darkened room, and cameras are showing different angles of these ever-hip and youthful musicians. The band leader comes out last, skipping and, and running out onto the stage. And he says something like, everyone on your feet, let's worship Jesus. Come on, let's get it going. Lift your hands to the Lord. Come on now, let's sing. And he's so excited. And, and then ironically, the band plays so loudly that you couldn't hear yourself singing if you tried. But that isn't the point anymore. The point is to enter into a state of emotional ecstasy and, and even numbness. Everyone's hands shoot up in the air and not wanting to feel left out. You join in as well. It's fun and it feels good. And you sense some emotional relief. After a few upbeat songs, the, the mood slows down and the band members go from jumping around on stage to now squinting heavenward, perhaps with a soft spotlight on the lead singer as the music slows and now the tears begin to flow, including yours, and you don't even know why. After about 45 minutes of this, you are moved and you are feeling emotions you have never felt. And you believe you have just had the worship experience that was promised on the website. Then you listen to a short but interesting message about how God is so enamored with you, how God is delighted in you, and why would you run from him? His love for you is bursting and overflowing and he just wants to give you good things. He wants to be your friend. He wants to be your pal. And for the first time in a long time, you feel really good. 
By now you're hooked. Not only are you coming back next week, you're bringing people with you. No wonder the parking lot is filled with cars. And you leave in a state of ecstasy, truly believing that you have encountered God, that you have worshipped. Now, you here at Grace Bible Church might be asking yourself, I wonder what kind of church Steve is describing. Well, that's an easy answer in the as we're a quarter of the way through the 21st century. That could be nearly any church in our nation, regardless of theology or denomination. And in fact, if you ask the average evangelical in America without reference to whether they're actually regenerate or not, what worship is, they will generally default to the music time at church. That's the definition of worship. And worship is thought of as an experience, and it is something that other people deliver to you. It is a product that you engage in. Well, now that we've gotten into our new building, we can settle in for the summer into our topical series we just kind of got started that I'm calling Biblical Answers to Difficult Questions. And the question I'd like to tackle this morning is what is biblical worship? Now, I have been looking at this for a number of weeks, actually. I know we need to get back to our Ezra-Nehemiah series on Sunday evenings, and I know that's what your bulletin says for tonight, but this topic is so vast and so vital that I I really couldn't just rush it through in one message. So I'm really going to give you one message today in two parts. So we'll do as much as we can this morning and then continue this evening. My goal this morning and this evening is to sharpen you and to focus your minds on how to think about worship to think biblically and not culturally, to frame your own worship in the context of what the Bible says and not in the context of what contemporary evangelicalism has said about worship. So I want to start, first of all, with a short definition for you, and this is what we'll work off of this morning and tonight. There's a short definition, and I'll repeat it a couple of times. Worship is the response to God. Worship is the response to God, and this is important, by redeemed people. Worship is the response to God by redeemed people. And then three parts, for his existence, his character, and his mercy to us through Christ. Worship is the response to God by redeemed people for his existence, his character, and his mercy to us through Christ. And I think the first thing we'll just mention here that key phrase, by redeemed people, an unregenerate person cannot worship God. It is impossible. And I think you'll see that this morning and tonight. Now, this is a topical message, so I'll be referencing many parts of Scripture that we won't have time to turn to. It, probably a couple, different, a couple dozen different places, actually. But our home base today is Job chapter 1, particularly verses 20 and 21. And the reason I love this text because it's a text on worship which obliterates any of our cultural notions about worship. You know the story of Job. Wealthy and prosperous Job, a worshiper of God, has just gotten devastating news. In a grand spiritual realm exchange between God and Satan in the heavenlies, Satan has denigrated God. He's put down God by claiming that God's people who are faithful to him are only faithful because God gives good things to them. Job chapter 1, in fact, we'll back up to verse 8 for a moment. Verse 8, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, 
Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And what's the devastating news that Job has received? He's received the news that all of his property, all of his wealth has been stolen or destroyed and that all 10 of his adult children have died simultaneously when they were in one house that collapsed on them. And what did Job do? Chapter 1, verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We're going to take a lot of rabbit trails today, but I want to organize our thoughts around four basic truths about biblical worship that we can derive from this text. And we'll use these as kind of launching points to give a a broad understanding of biblical worship. Now tonight, after we've finished exploring this topic, I'm going to give a synthesis, a summary of the key theological components of biblical worship. It will make a lot more sense after we've laid an extensive foundation. But for now, we want to do four basic truths about biblical worship. We'll do three of them this morning, and then we'll do the fourth one tonight, digging a little bit more into it. The first basic truth about biblical worship, the heart of worship is total submission. The heart of worship is total submission. And these four truths are based right here in this text. As a sign of his grief and despair, Job has torn his clothing. He's shaved his head in utter humiliation. And look at his response in verse 22. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Instead, what did he do? He fell on the ground and worshipped. I love this text because it destroys our cultural notions of worship. This is a, in a different universe, a different category than the typical church service I described for you a moment ago. There's no ecstasy. There's no exhilaration. The only emotion being felt is abject agony and grief. Total pain. But his response demonstrates for us what the true heart of worship is. It is total submission. He submits to God's right to do whatever he pleases in verse 21. And he demonstrates this submission in his posture of worship, a reflection of his heart. He's down on the ground. And look at the other humility of Job's heart. Our English text says that Job fell on the ground and worshiped. The two different verbs, and both verbs mean to collapse to the ground. The second verb has a form that in conjunction with the first verb is emphasizing that he did it repeatedly, perhaps for days or even weeks. So we could easily say then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped and fell on the ground and worshipped and fell on the ground and worshipped over and over again. But is this physical posture and this heart attitude of worship only because of grief? Only because Job was hurting? No, no. Actually, what Job's experience here is the norm for scriptural worship. It's normal. All of the major words for worship 
in Scripture imply or directly state some sort of humble submission. And it doesn't particularly reference a particular emotion either. I want to just give you a, a little sample survey. There's not time to do all the major words for worship, but I'll just give you a few of them. Two from the Old Testament and two from the New. It's just a sample survey here. I'll just number them. I'll tell you what they are, but, but you couldn't spell them anyway because I can't spell them. So uh, the first word, hishtakawa, you don't have to spell that. Call it word number one. That's easy. This is in the Old Testament. Word number one is very common. It occurs 170 times in the Old Testament. And in almost every case, it indicates either the worship of God or the worship of idols, the false worship of idols. Its original root sense describes the physical action of falling to the ground, bowing down to the ground. It's not just bowing your head. It's not just getting on your knees. It is literally laying down on the ground with your face in the dirt. It is a submission to a superior. You are inferior. There is a superior that you are submitting to. And so Hishtakawa became symbolic also of the attitude of worship, that there is a self-deprecation in comparison to the object of worship. And we find this word in Exodus 4.31, the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped Hishtakawa. They fell to the ground. There's a, a second word, kabod, and it's not so much, we'll call it word number two, it's not so much a direct worship word, but you'll see that it's very necessary. It's used in conjunction with worship words so much that we can't pass over it. It goes together with other words of worship. It's used prominently in Psalms, Isaiah, Exodus, Ezekiel, and Proverbs. And it generally means to be heavy, to be weighty. Figuratively speaking, it speaks of someone who has worth, who has impressiveness. It's used to speak of someone who is inherently deserving of respect, inherently deserving of obedience, inherently deserving of your honor. And it's a familiar word to you because it's almost always translated glory or the verbal form to glorify, to impart weightiness, to attribute weightiness to someone. When God's glory, his kabod, is spoken of, it's most often associated with him manifesting his splendor, manifesting his character in some way. It expresses the fact that God's kabod demands a response. It demands that you do something. Nobody is to just say, isn't that interesting? The glory of God just walked by. There is an acknowledgement and the immediate response of the manifestation of the glory of God is to worship God. Now, it's not a direct worship word, but it interacts, it intersects meaningfully and helpfully with terms of worship. I'll give you a few examples. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-three: You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. There's kabod in verbal form and stand in awe of him. Psalm 66, verse 2, sing the glory, the kabod of his name. They're singing and, and glorification right there together. Give to him glorious praise. Psalm 79, verse 9, puts the glory of God in conjunction with prayers for salvation. Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins. There's another one, and then we'll move to the New Testament now. We'll call this word number three. Word number three, proskuneo, 
Proskuneo is the Greek equivalent to word number one in the Old Testament, which means to physically bow down or to prostrate oneself in an act of worship. Jesus uses this term in John 4, 20 through 24, when he says that we worship in spirit and in truth. And this is very important because he clarifies that the act of worship must include the much more important accompanying attitude of worship. And so his main point is the heart attitude. But in the book of Revelation in particular, in the New Testament, literally falling down in worship continues to play a very real part. I don't think you will remain on your feet all, at all times when you see Jesus Christ face to face. You will at the very least fall to your knees because we know that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. The wise men from the east asked in Matthew 2 verse 2, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him, to fall down before him. And the text tells us that's exactly what they did. How about word number four, pipto, word number four in the New Testament. It also means to fall down or to prostrate yourself before someone. Now, here's the interesting thing. Pipto and proskuneo are often used together, to fall down and to fall down. When it's used with proskuneo, it always speaks of worship being given, and they're paired together frequently. Revelation 4.10, the 24 elders fall down, pipto, before him who is seated on the throne, and worship, proskuneo, him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the Lord. I don't think you can be any clearer that the heart of worship is humble submission. It is submission. There, there are other words for worship in the Bible, but I wanted to give you a flavor that that is the heart of worship. It is to bow before a superior. While we're primarily talking about formal worship this morning, we can't leave out the fact that the Christian life is worship in every aspect, and that falls in line with the humble submission aspect of worship. Romans 12.1, the Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, what? Worship. It's total submission of an inferior to a superior. That is the heart of worship. So our first basic truth, the heart of worship is total submission. That is a great starting point. There's a second basic truth we can find from our text here in Job 1. The meekness of worship is inwardly genuine. The meekness of worship is inwardly genuine. Job declares in verse 21, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. I think that's really about the most stark way that Job can express and acknowledge that he started as nothing and he will end as nothing. Whatever he was in between comes to nothing except for the grace of God. And his true heart is exposed in worship that he sees himself as the lowest of the low and God as the highest of the high. Now, I want you to know this. If we went through the whole book of Job, he does have his problems as we go. But his initial reaction was never to say, God, why me? Why did he not say, why me? Because he thought of himself as the lowest of the low. And his logic was, I came into the world naked. I don't have much more than that now, so I'm not behind. This is his genuine heart. 
A faith in the Lord that's bowed down, that's humble, that's contrite, that's God-exalting and man-abasing. It's very important. Throughout the past decades in our nation, going back historically to really about the mid-1750s and slightly after, but really heating up in just the past few decades, errors have slowly been introduced into Christian corporate worship. And when we say corporate worship, it just means when we're all together These are errors that are contrary in exactly the opposite to the truth that meekness of worship is inwardly genuine. And I'd like to just go through some of these errors so that you can be aware of them. A quick survey of some of these errors, I'll give you seven of them. The first error we'll call a narrowing of the definition of worship. A narrowing of the definition of worship. Uh, Nearly all of us have been so indoctrinated by cultural Christianity for the past decades that we still catch ourselves saying that music is our worship time. Once in a while, we get a brand new believer at Grace who's never been in church a day in his life. It's so glorious to give him the right words. Uh, He's not worried about all that. But it's common to hear in churches, which as a preacher is kind of discouraging, we'll have our time of worship and then the sermon. Well, that's kind of degrading, isn't it? No. We saw in Romans 12, all of life is to be an act of worship. And in our our corporate setting, all that we do in worship, all that we do is worship. If we give glory to God, everything is. Of course, you know that our own beloved Pastor Darren, this is a big deal to him. And I made the mistake of asking him a question. What do you think of this message? And he launched with what is in his heart. And we had a great conversation And he told me this week the story of the church member saying to his pastor, I really enjoyed the worship time. And the pastor responding, really, which part? The offering, the sermon, the pastoral prayer, the announcements, or was it the music? But the question is, why has worship been overly narrowed to a music time? I think the best answer is that worship has been redefined to be primarily something that's for me and for my emotional gratification, and music provides that the fastest and the most easily. When, when David is giving announcements as to where the bake sale for the youth group is, you guys aren't, you aren't weeping and saying, praise God for what that's done for my soul. You might be saying that'll be good after lunch, but not much more than that. We have narrowly defined worship to be music because music scratches an emotional itch. But speaking of music, here's a second error, a carelessness concerning theologically grounded lyrics. A carelessness concerning theologically grounded lyrics. When the purpose of music worship becomes to evoke an emotion, then the lyrics must change to match that, and they get watered down because singing about the Trinity doesn't seem quite as emotional as singing about what God wants to do for me. There's more emotion. So what do we do instead? The very safest thing to do is to sing scripture. We're safe right there. The second safest thing to do is to sing hymns with rich doctrinal truths that can be traced to specific passages of scripture. So a carelessness concerning theologically grounded lyrics. One of the things I appreciate about our our music ministry here is we do our very best to guard Every word that we sing here, according to Scripture. Here's a third error, and this is really one of the main points of this morning. The third error is the equating of worship with emotion. The equating of worship with emotion. 
Now, we absolutely understand, we absolutely believe that the genuine knowledge of God through Scripture and the truth of the gospel, this evokes emotion. When we speak of our salvation, we we speak in, in emoting terms, don't we? We don't say just kind of flatly, yes, I'm very glad that Jesus has saved me from my sins and from an eternity in hell. No, it's I'm glad and I'm so thankful. And we understand that. Our worship of God together in this very room, it evokes emotion. But listen carefully. Emotion is not worship and worship is not emotion. They're not identical. In fact, the equating of, immers- of, of worship with emotion has created the need for kind of an emotional fix of a manipulative, entertainment-driven so-called worship experience. And it's passed off as worship like what I described to you earlier, and it becomes an emotional drug that wears off on Tuesday or Wednesday, and you have to have more. We'll come back to this issue of worship as emotion in a little bit. Here's a fourth error. That informality in worship is more genuine. That informality in worship is more genuine. I'm not talking about the clothing you wear. I'm not talking about externals, although in Scripture, externals such as a sanctuary and a sacred space were important. I'm talking about the heart attitude, the wrong heart attitude that says that true worship is more of a somehow a a buddy-buddy experience with God. That's what makes it really genuine and real. And you hear this practiced in churches all over our nation when pastors and music worship leaders address God like God is, is slouched in torn jeans on the front row just hanging out. And, and they'll even pray, hey, Jesus, man, it's great to be with you here. It's great to hang with you. How awesome it is that you just want to be with us. How did Jesus address God? Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Even with his own father, there was no informality. Yes, you speak to God as your Abba, as your father. Yes, you speak to Jesus as your savior. And even as scripture calls him the oldest brother among many siblings. But that does not negate that worshiping God is a heart attitude of meekness and falling down before a superior. When the Apostle John saw the glorified Jesus in Revelation 1, he did not say, hey, Jesus. He thought he was going to die. Here's a fifth error. We'll call this a decentralizing of preaching as the pinnacle of worship. A decentralizing of preaching as the pinnacle of worship. Do you know why? Churches use 45 to 60 minutes of really loud, emotional uh, music that almost numbs your brain because you'll believe anything after that. It is a form of mass hypnosis to where anybody can come up and tell you anything you want instead of you deliberately taking in truth, whatever is said becomes easier to digest. But why is the preached word the pinnacle of our worship? Why is it the top? Because it's through the preached word that we become more like God, that we're sanctified. We become more like the God we worship. It's the preached word that transforms you into the image of Christ. The Bible is one giant case study to prove that you become like that which you worship. Did you catch that? You become like that which you worship. If you are not learning about your God, you will not worship him properly and you will not become like him. Jesus said it this way in his great high priestly prayer for us in John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. 
Your word is truth. It's the pinnacle. It's the top. And in fact, it's because of a lack of biblical preaching that worship services themselves have all these errors introduced into them. That's the whole point. Here's a sixth error. We'll call this a confusion of private and corporate worship. A confusion of private and corporate worship. We have many examples of private and personal worship in Scripture. Our, our text here in Job chapter 1 is one of those. And in this moment, Job is dealing purely with himself and with God. Your personal worship time, your time alone in your prayer closet, as it were, your time alone in prayer, you do things in that time that perhaps you would not and ought not to do in a group setting. It's a personal time. It is time with, with you and the Lord. It's a time where maybe you're weeping openly. It's a time where maybe you're, you're so thankful for all that he's done. It's maybe a time that you literally laugh aloud at how gracious he's been. But the error that coming to a worship service so that I personally get some sort of emotional fix, it's at its root selfishly motivated. In our corporate worship time together, it is not just about you. It is about us together. And in fact, we have a responsibility to each other. Listen to the description of a worship gathering in Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everyone, everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. What is the context of submitting to one another? It is a worship service. We, we are helping each other. You're not just here for you. You're here for each other. If that weren't the case, we would send you all home and just I'd just show up and live stream to a camera. One more error, we'll call this the cheapening of worship. The cheapening of worship. If you open your mouth to sing to the Lord, if you listen attentively to the word of God like you are right now, if you have a truly thankful heart, if you're in a focused attitude of prayer, if you're even working at not being a distraction to those around you, I have a question. Why have you assumed that God will receive this? Why have you assumed that God even wants to hear your songs? God even is pleased at all with your eager listening minds. Why have you assumed that? And if I asked you that question, you would give me the correct answer. The correct answer is because the admission price to worship is paid. It was paid by God. You see, worship is not free. It's free to you, but it was not free. The cheapening of worship happens when we forget that for you to sit and hear the word of God without incurring the wrath of God costs the Son of God his life. Or I could put it this way, blood was shed. In my discussion with Pastor Darren this week, he said something that stuck with me and it will stick with me my whole life, that all through the Bible, worship is bloody. Worship costs The privilege to approach a holy God must be purchased because of your sin. And think about in the Old Testament the radical picture that you got that before you were allowed to address God, you must sacrifice and something must die. We don't have that picture as clearly in some ways here except for what's behind me, right? The cross. Every time you look at the cross, you remember that that is the means by which you have the privilege of worshiping God. 
And we remember that Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, and he washed it white as snow. Can I tell you this? The next time you receive the Lord's table, would you remember purposefully that the reason for the Lord's table is to relive and to recall the broken body of Jesus Christ and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and that without that, God wants nothing to do with you? Why would he? He's holy, and you are not. But because of the shed blood of Christ, God, who would have been your judge, is now called by Jesus himself our Abba, our Daddy, our Father. And he delights in his children. So, why do we say the meekness of worship is inwardly genuine? Why do we say that? Because one of the major functions of you worshiping God, us here together, is that this is an acknowledgement of your weakness, of your powerlessness, of your tremendous need for grace and mercy. You should be looking around at the other saints and saying, I can't believe I get to be included with them. They should be saying, I can't believe I get to be included with you. I can't believe I'm part of the people of God. I can't believe that I'm here with those that I will stand in heaven with someday. That's why we worship. It is meek. It is inwardly genuine. The heart of worship is total submission. The second basic truth, the meekness of worship is, is inwardly genuine. Total submission, rather, and inwardly genuine. Here's a third basic truth. The focus of worship is sovereign God. The focus of worship is sovereign God. Job declares in verse 21, the sovereign power and rights of God. He said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. One of the major functions of worship is to acknowledge the fact that God alone is sovereign, that God alone is in control of all events and has the inherent right as the creator of all things. This is Job worshiping God when God gives and Job worshiping God when God takes away. This is God-centered worship. It is the antithesis of the man-centered worship so often characterized in modern evangelicalism. What happened? What happened to the church to get us to the point that what we do at Grace Bible Church is the exception, not the rule? What got us here? I want to invest a little bit of time with you tracing the history of what happened. You see, a major component to this drift from God-centered worship and from the acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God is that evangelicalism in general has come to believe that emotion and sentiment is the key component to a relationship with God. That your relationship with God equals emotion. It is something you feel. I don't doubt and I don't deny that a relationship with God includes something you feel. You know what I feel when I get to preach the word? Ecstasy. Every time. It's absolute joy. But that is not the definition. That is not the key component. And we don't deny that God has made us as emotional beings, but it goes too far when outward attempts to create emotion are then equated with an encounter with God. Todd Brenneman, in his book Homespun Gospel, gives a good analysis of the balanced thinking of the early American pastor and theologian, Jonathan Edwards. Brenneman gives a good analysis of what Edwards 
thought about this because Edwards was right in the middle of a tremendous revival called the Second Great Awakening. This was a genuine revival happening in the American colonies in the mid-1700s, which was accompanied by tremendous shows of, guess what, emotion. But here's the balance, and this is Edwards speaking. Edwards said this, quote, the emotionality present in the revivals affirmed the authenticity of revivalism while also, hear this, also cautioning individuals not to equate the presence of the emotions with the validity of religious experience. Simply because one was emotional did not mean one was godly. Instead, true or godly emotions arose from divine operations on the heart and had their fruit in Christian practice. Now, that's a mouthful. Let me interpret this for you. If somebody says, I have come to faith in Christ, and I experienced a genuine emotion of joy and ecstasy that I am now redeemed, Edward says, great, what does your life look like after that? That proves the genuineness of salvation, not the emotion. The emotions of the converted sinner proved their validity by the changed life of that sinner. But contrary to that balanced understanding that emotion may be a valid and understandable response to conversion and to the gospel, modern evangelicalism sees emotion not as, listen carefully, not as the response to worship, but as the means of worship. As the means of arriving at loving Christ, the means of understanding the gospel, the means of experiencing God. This modern movement of worship would say you have to break down the will, break down the emotions of the person with music so that they're ready to hear truth. That is man-centered Arminianism at its worst. And the major way that this emotionalism is tapped into is with a popular, in fact, the, the most popular view of God that is itself purely sentimental. The best-selling Christian books of the past 30 to 40 years are always sentimental. What do we mean by that? A sentimental view of God is a view of God that says that God is a loving Father who is desperate for a relationship with humanity. That God won't be complete without you. Even one song that says God didn't want heaven without you that he has a yearning and a longing which can only be fulfilled by a relationship with his creation. You know why those books sell? Because they're all about how wonderful you are to God. It's the opposite. It leaves very little room for minor things like sin and the wrath of God and hell. I don't know of any best-selling books on hell. They don't go to the top of the Amazon list. And by using this view of God, the emotion-based worship service, the emotion-based sermon, which has the goal of pulling at your heartstrings and making you feel something, the listener and the participant is meant to feel something, and then you're told you've just encountered God. Beginning as far back as the mid-1700s, overlapping, ironically, with the genuine salvation experiences of many tens of thousands in the American colonies during the Second Great Awakening, a Wesleyan second blessing experience began to be taught. And this began to catch on all over America. This was a post-conversion dramatic experience that supposedly provided entire perfection and sinlessness from that time forward. And ironically, you couldn't receive that unless you were in a worship service and there was heightened emotion. 
And I know we think in 1750, how can you heighten emotion? The same way we did now. We do now with length and with all kinds of uh, manipulation of a crowd. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism and Wesleyanism, had a successor, John Fletcher. John Fletcher took Acts 11.16, which speaks of being baptized with the Holy Spirit. And just to be clear, in theologically accurate terms, this speaks of the moment of salvation and your inclusion into the body of Christ. But Fletcher taught that this being baptized with the Holy Spirit was an event after salvation, and he coined the term the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In American Methodism in the 19th century, this notion of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and an emotional experience as part of true spirituality, it took root significantly. And in fact, in the mid to late 19th century in America, revival meetings, tent meetings, began using techniques to emotionally break people down and create a sense of having encountered the divine. You would have long meetings going late into the night, and they'd go night after night after night. It wasn't uncommon for one evangelist to stay in a city for two weeks and to have everybody in the town and the, the local area coming night after night. Singing could last for hours. Invitations by the evangelist with emotional and intense repetition that could go for two hours long. By the end of the 19th century, an encounter with God was now normally considered to be an extremely emotional event with emotion both as the means to encounter God and the result of encountering God. It was normal. And so you get to the year 1900. And by the start of the 20th century, the Church of Jesus Christ was ripe for a massive redirection. Now, what could possibly outdo the emotion of the revival meetings? What could outdo the dramatic conversions that seemed, at least on the surface, to be life-changing despite a man-centered gospel being preached? Well, Satan had a plan, and it began with a man named Charles Parham. Charles Parham was a Bible training school teacher in Topeka, Kansas. He was a former Methodist pastor who taught that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was now bringing back first century miracles. The only problem was that nobody actually experienced that, but he was teaching it. He taught that the only evidence of baptism of the Holy Spirit was that of speaking in tongues. And so his students began praying for this baptism. Obviously, you're going to pray for what you're being taught. And finally, on January 1st, 1901, Agnes Osmond apparently became the first modern person to speak in tongues, which some identified as Chinese. That was later proven to be gibberish, no language whatsoever. Well, Parham had another student. His name was William Seymour. William Seymour became the pastor of a Nazarene church in Los Angeles. And he preached that anyone who does not speak in tongues is not baptized in the Holy Spirit. And in one of the rare good things done by the Nazarene church in recent years, they were upset and they padlocked the door and they kept him out. Good for them. But a couple of months later, he became pastor of a holiness church on Azusa Street in downtown Los Angeles. And over the next three and a half years, thousands and thousands of people claimed to have received the gift of tongues in highly emotionally charged worship services. He had to be in the worship service for it to happen. There on Azusa Street, it became known as the Azusa Street Revival. They took these experiences back to their churches all over the nation. 
And this began to be normal. I'll deal with the gift of tongues in a separate message later this summer. But what I'm showing you is that emotionalism, which became normal in the 19th century, was now whipped into a frenzy by the Pentecostal movement of the early 1900s. And over the next six decades, the Pentecostal church, the Assemblies of God, the International Church of the Four Square Gospel dominated the Christian experience until 1960. Now, a little side note here. Pentecostalism, the Assemblies of God, the Four Square Gospel churches, yes, they dominated the the Christian uh, culture, but they were still kind of seen by all the other denominations, by other conservative Christians. They were kind of seen as backwoods, redneck Christians that Pentecostalism was more likely to happen in a, in a little church built out in the woods than it was in a downtown large metropolitan city, and that was true. I'll come back to that in a moment. Along the way, along with the emotionalism and the supposedly speaking in tongues, for six decades, this message was also now, for the first time, being intertwined with a message of health and wealth that if you truly have faith in God, not only does he give you all these wonderful emotional experiences, but he gives you perfect health and he gives you wealth. And in fact, 20th century Christian historians have noted that speaking in tongues is the second biggest feature of the charismatic movement. First in line, though, is the belief that God grants wealth to Christians. That's first. In other words, there are fewer charismatics who believe in speaking in tongues than believe in the health-wealth gospel. Then from 1960 to 1979, you had what some call the second wave of the charismatic movement, the charismatic renewal. In November of 1959, the pastor of St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Van Nuys, California, Dennis Bennett, interestingly, had been one who openly criticized the Pentecostal movement, but all of a sudden, in the midst of a worship service, he began to pray in tongues, or at least that's what he thought. Remember the odd uh, backwoods Pentecostal movement? Not anymore. Almost immediately, the backwoods Pentecostal movement took on an air of respectability when Episcopalians and Baptists and Methodists and Catholics and Presbyterians began flocking to St. Mark's in Van Nuys, supposedly being baptized with the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, then taking this practice back with them to their home churches all over the country. Then you take it to 1980, And you have two massive atomic bombshells happening at the same time. The first one was the third wave of the charismatic movement. And it brought a new flavor of this heresy. Churches and church members who were not charismatic, were not Pentecostal at all, were now being thrilled and enamored by this movement. These were churches by the thousands that didn't want to radically change. They wanted to stay Presbyterian. They wanted to stay Baptist and so forth. But they didn't want to be left out either. They wanted to feel included. And so they allowed certain practices that became intensely associated with the charismatic movement. It was sort of like, yes, we'll let it in slowly. They would allow public speaking in tongues, at least to a certain extent. As some churches would say, we only do that on Sunday nights. You know, we kind of keep it under, the, under wraps. That was tolerated. They began to have certain methods and, and techniques for praying for the sick. They began to have the sick in the church come forward for prayer, which is, which is fine. But this was based on trying to keep up with the charismatics. And then perhaps the single most visible outcome of the typical charismatic worship service that now was infiltrating all the churches 
was the raising of hands. The raising of hands to receive divine healing, to receive miracle powers where it originated. Well, very quickly, the raising of hands became associated with music. No one raised their hands to God during the offering, right? Unless to say, can I get change for the 20? They didn't raise their hands during announcements. Maybe when the children were dismissed, the hands were raised just a little bit. But the third wave folks took this to a whole different level. They wanted a broader approach that didn't have to say, I'm a charismatic, didn't have to say, I'm a Pentecostal, and yet inculcated these charismatic practices and sometimes at a higher level, such as the vineyard movement. The vineyard movement taught that you would have a whole church speak in tongues all at once, that miracles, visions, healing, prophecies, and tongues were all part of the gospel. It was necessary for evangelism. You had other chaos in worship services completely unknown in scripture. The third wave of the charismatic movement has another name. It's often called the signs and wonders movement. The signs and wonders movement says, yes, the gospel is rational, but it exceeds the rational. And we go beyond. We're not just charismatic or Pentecostal. They would say, we are spiritual Christians. And now the third wave said, this is what true Christianity is. That if you're stuck in some poor, what they would call unspirit-filled church that's just preaching the Bible and singing hymns. How sad for you. You should get on board with real faith. By the 1990s, the Pentecostal style of worship had infiltrated so many mainstream evangelical churches with services featuring contemporary music, raising of hands, prayer for the sick. It became very difficult to discern and distinguish a Pentecostal church from any other church. That was atomic bombshell number one. Same time, same year, atomic bombshell number two, the seeker-sensitive movement exploded on the scene at at exactly the same time. This was a movement that sought to teach, listen carefully, the unbeliever to feel something in a worship service. Where there's a tangible, visible expression of this emotionalism where it's easily attained. And so now you have to have the smoky stages. You have to have the, the, the intense excitement of music You had now what you might call the non-charismatic who was fully accepting of charismatic theology, kind of a typical worship service that was purely to excite the emotion and that was taken as an encounter with God. And the seeker-sensitive movement which sought to pander to the lost and the unbelievers not to give them the gospel but to give them an experience that they would say is God, well, they, they said, well, there, nobody in their right mind is going to come off the street after having listened to all the great uh, metal and all the great rock music of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Nobody's going to come off the street and be enamored by a choir. And nobody's going to want to see a guy wearing a tie. We've got to rip those off. And so the choir was replaced by all electronic instruments with the express purpose of breaking down emotional barriers and causing feelings of excitement. And so now, what used to be the cultivated atmosphere of joyful fear of God, which is appropriate in worship, was now replaced by a cultivated party-like atmosphere of ecstasy and feeling, followed by a man-centered message to let you know that I'm okay and you're okay and God loves you just the way you are. Or, to coin a phrase that has been misused, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Then why does he send sinners to hell? 
And so what happened was that the First Baptist Church in town was no longer distinguishable from the exciting Assembly of God church down the street. And any church that continued sadly singing hymns and preaching the Bible was viewed as old-fashioned or worse, non-spirit-filled. You can drive down the, the, the streets of any city in our nation today and look for church signs that say, a spirit-filled church. And what got left behind in all this mess, what got left behind was the Bible. What got left behind was truth. And by now, the charismatic Christian experience was all but devoid of the gospel. You see, the, the goal was not to receive Christ. The goal was to receive the Holy Spirit and all kinds of the goodies that go with it, the miracles, the tongues, the health, and the wealth. And the sinner was now defined as somebody who didn't have enough faith to receive those things. You don't hear the stories of the thousands and thousands of people who came into the charismatic movement and all the promises of health and wealth didn't work out and they slink out the back door completely disillusioned about God. They don't publish those stories. And those worship practices associated with a false gospel, associated with creating emotion as false worship, they've stuck. And now they've become the norm. So that now, at so many formerly faithful churches, the average guest is greeted by some version of a show, some version of trying to create hype and emotion and an I'm okay and you're okay message instead of gathering together to humbly acknowledge that God is sovereign and I am not. The heart of worship is total submission. The meekness of worship is inwardly genuine and the focus of worship is sovereign God. Well, I want to spend tonight exclusively looking at the fourth basic truth. I won't tell you what it is, that way you'll come back. And we're going to include, as an example, we're going to trace the practice of hand-raising in the church, and we're going to trace it both historically and in Scripture. And then I'm going to end tonight with a summary or a synthesis of a theology of worship to make sure we're all on the same page and we'll go through that and we'll apply that very clearly to our own hearts. So let's, let's end like we began. Would you repeat after me? Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. And let us exalt his name together. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you now hopeful and prayerful and humbly seeking that we have been engaging in genuine worship this morning. We have engaged our minds to hear of Christ and the, the gospel. We have sung these truths at the top of our lungs, Lord. We have prayed to you. We have sought after you. Oh, Lord, you receive our worship, not because of some emotion that we generate, but you receive our worship because of the cross of Jesus Christ. That precious blood that was shed that purchased salvation for us, that made it possible for us to obey the book of Hebrews that says that we may boldly approach the throne of grace. And so, Lord, we come to you this morning thankful for the privilege of worshiping you. We think of all the places in Scripture where you hate the religious exercises of unbelievers, of fakes, of frauds, of phonies. May that never be said of us. May we humbly bow on the ground before you as inferiors before our superior, as those who are not sovereign before the one 
living God who is sovereign. This is possible all because of our beloved and blessed Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.